afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to Sit Down for a Toss-Up. I'm Adam Bass. Empathy is a key component of journalism. To be able to walk in another one's shoes has become a harder and harder to do with a polarized country. But those who do manage to take the task and become the best storytellers. Today, we have one of those folks in the journalism in journalism, journalism industry with this ability. He's the author of the new book, We're Not Broken, and has written several bylines for the Washington Post, The Week, and other publications. Please join me in welcoming Eric Michael Garcia. Eric, welcome to WCCS. Thank you very much for having me. So, Eric, um, I want to begin by talking about your latest accomplishment, and that is the book you've just written, We're Not Broken. Um, the book uh, is focused on how the autistic community is portrayed in American society through media and culture. Um, from what I've read in the book, you've clearly used your life as a way to connect the reader for what it means to be, as you would say, actually autistic. Um, so how did this idea of writing the book came to be? So first off, I should say that I didn't come up with the term actually autistic. That was a term that was created by the autistic community oh. that has been used by a lot of other autistic people. Um, the way the book came about, and this is a really funny story. I was at a party God, it must have been, yeah, it had to have been six years ago. So, yeah, something like six years ago. Um, and I was uh, talking with uh, a friend at a party and they said to me, uh, oh, do you want a drink? And I said, oh, I don't drink because of a medicine I take because I'm on the autism spectrum doesn't mix with alcohol. And uh, she said, oh, uh, you should write a story about this, about what it's like to be autistic in DC. And I was like, nah, you know, I'm not, I'm not experienced enough. I was 24, I was 24 at the time, yeah. So I, so I just passed on that. But then um, I decided uh, to write something when uh, there had been, you know, when things had changed at the magazine, I was working in National, when I was working in National Journal at the time and I wrote, and then I pitched the idea to my editor, Retrojust, Just, and he said to me, um, well, why should you write something like this? And I said, well, because we spent too much time trying to cure autistic people and not enough time trying to actually help autistic people. And around that same time, if you remember, uh, I grew up in Southern California. There were a lot of measles cases after some kids at Disneyland got infected. And it was a lot of, I guess you could say, crunchy California hippie liberals. <laughs> and then around the same time, um, Donald Trump was starting to run for president. And he was actively talking about how vaccines play a role in autism. So it really kind of was the right place at the right time. So I wrote that essay. And then that turned into a book. I mean, that, that, I wrote that essay. And then I, I thought to myself, and then um, an agent came and spoke to my agent, Heather Jackson, and she said, well, what do you, would you want to turn this into a book? And I was like, sure. And then the, the next question was, well, what would it look like if we created a world where autistic people could, uh, were the authors of their own fate? So I traveled the country. I went, to the, I went to Michigan. I went to Nashville, Tennessee. I went to West Virginia. I went to uh, San Francisco. Uh, and basically just tried to see what would that look like? Um, and what are those kind of social gaps and what are the kind of flaws in policy that exist um, that prevent people from living, you know, um, fulfilling lives? Yeah, that's one of the things I really like about your book. I actually did buy it, by the way. Great read. Oh, thank you very much. Um, and that's one of the things I love about it because it's all about storytelling. And when you are a storyteller, you are the expert of something, you know, and sometimes. these people, sometimes, you know, you do the best you can. Um, but, you know, these people that you've talked to, um, you were able to 
let them be able to tell their story without having someone else tell it because they know the experience firsthand. So, you know, and when writing it, did you have any sort of epiphanies or certain moments that made you laugh or rethink about your experiences with growing up with autism? Um, I wouldn't, I think what I would say is it made me rethink beginning in the beginning of writing this book. I didn't think of autistic people. I thought that I didn't consider non-speakers as valid or as their communication was as equal. I'll admit that. That was a flaw on my part. I didn't believe that, or I didn't take them as seriously as I should have. But interviewing non-speaking autistic people who use communication devices or speak through other things, uh, it showed me that their that their words are just as valid and just as and just as important, and they don't need to be cured or they don't need to be fixed. Um, anything most of the time uh, we're not listening we're, 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 we think of them as deficient or need to be fixed because we're not listening to them uh, I'll give you an example there's this great uh, young man by the name of Hari Srinivasan he's a student over at UC Berkeley um, who is not speaking um, really lovely human being really intelligent poetry writer writes for the Daily Cal um, and he was for a long time he struggled he went through ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis. He was jumping through all these different hoops. And it was because people were trying to make him something that he wasn't. But once he had a communication device and learned to type on it, he was thriving. And the thing that it taught me was, we shouldn't try to force autistic people to not communicate. We shouldn't create different tiers of autism that all forms of communication are valid. And what we should do is we should try to listen and meet them where they are. I think that's what changed. Now, why do you think so many people want to, quote unquote, cure autism, as you would say, or, or try to make them something that they're not? Because, you know, I, I can't imagine because the way I see autism is that it's a part of you, you know, yeah. it's almost like a super, it's almost like a superpower. Um, you, you can't take that away. You can't take that away. And I, I always, I, I, I appreciate when people say that it's a superpower, but in some ways I often worry that it puts too high of expectations on autistic people. Um, okay, no, no, redacted. <laughs> I, I, I totally understand. Um, but also I don't want autistic people to have to be super. I want them to be normal. I want hmm. them to be able to be, it kind of reminds me of the model minority for Asian Americans. The, mm -hmm. the idea that, um, you know, oh, Asian Americans are the model minority because they all go to medical school and they have tiger moms, that is, just as racist and just as bigoted as saying that all black people are lazy or all Latinos are lazy. Um, but, uh, but, but, but to that, I think the reason why we thought we wanted to cure autism is for a long time, um, it was seen as a personal failing. Um, going back to 1943, when Leo Connor put out his first study on autism, um, all the way up until Bruno Bettelheim, it was seen as something that was caused by unloving parents, who were called what Bruno Bettelheim I think called refrigerator parents. So, if it's caused by unloving parents, if it is literally compared to, if they literally compare these kids to the prisoners at Auschwitz, which Bruno Bettelheim did, then of course you want to cure it. And I think that for a long time, parents, even to this day, still are told that autism is an apocalyptic thing. And as a result, um, 
autism is playing catch up with a lot of disabilities because this was going on in the 1960s all the way up into the 1970s, these ideas. Um, it didn't join the larger disability rights movement. I don't know if you saw the movie Crip Camp last year. I did. Very funny. Uh, and you know, well, funny was, and how it can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and it was, you know, that, that was going on in the 1970s, uh, 504 said and things like that. Autism, because of, it was seen as a personal failing, it wasn't part of that larger disability rights movement. Mm -hmm. So as a result, a, there's still a lot of misconceptions. And then, of course, there's um, the whole vaccine um, lie and myth. How did that get started? Like, I, I grew up in a pretty uh, bubble of, like, not knowing about the vaccine autism uh, lie. How did that even get started? So, uh, long story. There have been anti-vaxxers as long as there have been vaccines, almost. Uh -huh. um, but the real, and then it was somewhat perpetuated by someone by the name of Bernard Rimland, but now, but it didn't really catch fire. As we know it, it really doesn't begin until 1998 when... Uh, a guy by the name of Andrew Wakefield, who is a physician, who's a, who's a doctor at the, I believe it's the Royal Free Hospital in London, put out a study in the Lancet, um, basically saying that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine uh, causes or is linked to leaky gut syndrome, which causes enzymes to leak out of the stomach and uh, um, intestines and then that goes into the brain and it causes autism if it sounds ridiculous that's because it is that's... um <laughs> I, uh, I don't even know the correlation with that <laughs> uh, don't bother but the thing of it is that was important was that this was that he was a respected physician he was a respected doctor and it kind of caught fire and this was around the time that we that the reason why it was important was because um in the 1980s there was an increase th th there was an expansion of the diagnostic criteria for autism for a long time it was considered what we would now call what was then called childhood schizophrenia in 1980 the diagnostic statistical manual of mental uh, uh mental disorders um removed it from being classified as a symptom of schizophrenia and moved it to a separate, its own separate diagnosis. Over time, you get things like pervasive uh, developmental disorder, not as device specified, you get autistic disorder, you get Asperger's syndrome. Um, so you get, so by virtue of that, you get, if you expand the diagnostic criteria, you're going to get more autistic people. Mm. Uh, at the same time, in the 1990s, uh, in 1990, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed and more important, I would argue more importantly, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act um, was passed. It was a reauthorization of the Education for, Handi uh, for Handicapped Children Act. And what it did is that it meant that schools had to report how many disabled children they were serving, public schools, schools that received federal dollars needed to report it to the Department of Education. So as a result, you saw a surge in autism diagnoses. And this was also around the time that you were society was weaning itself off the idea that autism was caused by parents. So this was in some ways finding a new culprit. And also there, when you see this increase in diagnoses, it was easy to say, oh my God, it's an epidemic. And the vaccines were seen as the perfect culprit. Mm -hmm. The thing that later happened though, was, um, and Brian Deere, there was a journalist by the name of Brian Deere who investigated this, 
um, was that um, Andrew Wakefield was receiving um, payments from uh, lawyers who were trying to sue vaccine companies. But the problem was that A, had already permeated in the, U in the UK, and then it also permeated, per per uh, perpetuated in the US, uh, largely because Wakefield testified before Congress in 2000, um, and that took root. And he had a lot of uh, big supporters like Jim Carrey and Jenny McCarthy. Um, so it took root at a really peculiar, it was able to take root, I should say, mm. at a peculiar time when our understanding of autism was changing. Mm. It's good to know, actually. I, I love hearing history about this because it also can help us uh, focus on what's going on in the future, especially with these vaccines coming up. Yes. Right. Now, the other side of your reporting I want to talk about is a recent article that you released for the Wash. It was for the Washington Post? Or yes, the Washington Post magazine, yes. Okay, it was for the Washington Post. I thought they just came out and was like, hey, can we use your article? No. Um, <laughs> it was on, you were talking about your father and other Latino men who voted for Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, I read it. Great article. Deserved to be on the front of the magazine. Let's go through your thought process when you were writing that down and how what conclusions you came to for those who haven't read it. Um, sure. So the thing that I initially, I think like a lot of people, um, and I should say I'm Mexican-American. Um, my And uh, my parents were Republicans for a long time. Um, my mom is a Democrat now, but my parents were Republicans. So as a Mexican-American man, I was born in, I was born in Chicago, but my, my dad's from Texas and my mom is from California. Um, Latino Republicans are not new to me. That's what, that, that's what I grew up with. But I think that what I saw, I think what a lot of people saw on election night in 2020, I think on the, especially particularly on the first night is a lot of uh, counties in Florida and in Texas were, were, were reporting back. You saw just a wave of Latino voters voting for Donald Trump. And I think that that shocked a lot of people um, because they thought that, well, Trump is, a lot of liberals thought, well, Trump is a racist, they would never vote for, that, that they would, Latinos would never vote for him because of the things they said about the wall. Uh, and then uh, a lot of people thought that, well, you know, maybe he could win Cuban voters. Maybe he can improve with, uh, with Cubanos because all of us talk about socialism, the same with Venezuelans. But then you saw what was happening in the Rio Grande Valley and in Star County and Zapata County in Texas. And then what you realize is that almost across the board, a lot of Latinos were improving. So initially my, the editor of uh, that piece, Richard Joss reached out to me, said, do you, said, do you want to do something about Latino voters? And I was like, and he's like about how they can win back, how Democrats can win back Latino voters. And I was like, yeah, why not? But then the more that I noticed, the more people started talking to me about Latino men. And when I looked at the statistics, so there's some more, Info that's come out since this piece, is, this piece has been published, showing that Trump might have improved more with Latinas than he did with Latino men. Really? But it's just that there are already enough, I think it was Eki's research, who I quote in the, in the article. Um, but it's just that there were more Latino men who are already Republican. And so, so there was so more Latino men in the aggregate overall. Okay voted for Donald Trump, but it's just that 
Democrats saw a steeper decline between 2016 and 2020 with uh, between Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, and that Trump had a bigger improvement with Latino women. It's just that more Latinas overall voted for the Democrats. So I think that was what I was trying to do. And I was trying to figure it out. So basically what I did is I went around and I tried to report and see what happened. And I think it is in some ways, at least what I saw is that it's basically a big red flag for Democrats uh, going into future elections. Can you expand on that red flag? And the, the, sure. The, the, I think the thing that you've seen over the past few years, you've seen Democrats over time become more and more the party of college educated people in urban areas. Um, and as a result, they have been turned off. They, they, they have in some ways risked turning off uh, working class Latinos, Asian Americans, and even black Americans, Trump improved his numbers with, he got something like 13%, I, I don't quote me on that, something like 13% on with uh, of black men voted for Donald Trump. And I think what it shows is that for better or worse, Trump did better outreach with Latinos and with Asian Americans and with black Americans, black voters. And then B, what it also showed is that um, a lot of the themes that he hit on fear of socialism, but also support for law enforcement, support for the military, um, support for the oil industry. I think that's a big thing a lot of people don't discuss is the support for the oil industry. Uh, I missed it as well. I didn't realize it. Uh, we're all the big, we're, we're all can be signifiers that can help Republicans win Latino voters. Mm -hmm. Actually, funny that you should mention that. Um, my friend Jesse Hahn, co-host of the Cod Cabin, just sent me this um, this poll for, from German Lopez. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. From Data for Progress and Vox, saying that basically everyone, Democrat, Republican, young, old, white, black, brown, would feel safer with more police patrols in their neighborhoods. So yeah, your your theory holds up. The the, the final thing I want to touch upon uh, with with this part of the conversation before we move on to one final note. Um, do you think that, you know, Trump for the longest time positioned himself as sort of this uh, uh, somewhat of a Horatio Alger rags to riches sort of guy? Yes. Um, there you go. You, you think that message really stuck, struck home with them? Uh, it absolutely did. And I could talk about this even with my own father. My father worked for my grandfather in construction. And my grandfather was your, he died before I was born, but my grandfather was your classic Reagan Democrat, I think I would go as far as to borrow from Chuck Rocha, who's a strategist for Bernie Sanders, uh, to say that he was your classic kind of Mexican redneck. Um, uh, he ran construction, and I think he was kind of blunt talking. And I think that kind of unvarnished, crass, kind of unsugarcoated thing appeals to a lot of people. And then also what it does is it says that Look, Trump got to where he did because of his dad. He got a small loan uh, from, from his dad from, from of, a, of a million dollars, I think it was. But then also his dad bailed out his casino businesses consistently, like just completely kept his, his empire afloat. Uh, it's an empire made of sand, but one of the, or built on sand. But Trump projected this image and i think it's really important to recognize the power of television trump has been on television 
for about twice as long as I've been alive. He's a he's uh, a culture icon. He's as about as famous as Mickey Mouse. Yeah, he 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 is. When you talk about wealth in America, and when you talk like name, if you ask somebody who's one random rich guy, they'll tell you like what Bill Gates and Donald Trump. You know, uh, though I think more people associate Bill Gates with public health these days. But so so people would say Donald Trump, and he was a master at projecting that. He had his own television show about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it made it so it made him seem like the ideal version of a successful self-made man. And that played a role with a lot of Latino men. And it played a role with a lot of even with a lot of Latinas. I think the thing the, the other thing to take into account was that the coronavirus pandemic allowed for immigration to kind of take a backseat. And Latinos according to polling from like Eki's research shows that they really didn't like a lot of the lockdowns or the effects of the coronavirus pandemic because a lot of them are working class. A lot of them work in in-person hotels, construction, service industry jobs. Um, my mom works in retail. My mom's a Democrat, but she works in retail. Uh, my dad works in uh, home care. So that appealed to it. And Trump was able to speak about that, especially when it's talk about liberating as, as dangerous as that might be. That did resonate with some people. Final thoughts. Um, and this is very uh, niche because I know you're a big music fan. Uh, yeah. thoughts, of, thoughts on the new Prince album coming up, the posthumous Prince album coming up. I always feel bad. I always feel weird about posthumous albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fan of Prince. I love Prince. I'm a big fan of his. But I, I I always feel uncomfortable unless it's something that was already in the works when they were doing it. Or I I don't know how I feel about it. Like um, because it's always going to be some kind of mishmash. It's because it's incomplete. So I I I I'll listen to it fine. But do I feel if it's good? Sure. But. Do I feel morally okay with it? I don't know. Well, only time will tell when we listen to the album. And I want to thank you, Eric, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Folks, go read Eric's you. work. You can find him at, uh, at Eric M. Garcia. He is known as the People's check, Blue Checkmark. Uh, go and listen to his work and go and uh, read his work. Thank you for listening. I'm Adam Bass. And thank you for listening to Sit Down for a Toss-Up. Mm-hmm.